so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. The Bible calls Christians to care for orphans in their distress. One way to live out this mandate is through adoption and foster care. Let's listen in as Sharon Ford, Dan Dumas, Chuck Johnson, Emily Chapman Richards, and Becky Wyhand discuss caring for orphans at the Evangelicals for Life Conference in Washington, D.C. Well, good evening, everyone. It's our pleasure to be with you. My name is Sharon Ford. And I have a wonderful group of young people who are here to share a part of their story with you. First, we have Dan Dumas. And Dan is the CEO of Red Buffalo and an adoptive father. And then we have the wonderful Chuck Johnson. And Chuck is the president and CEO of the National Council for Adoption. And then Mrs. Emily Chapman Richards is the vice president and assistant director of Show Hope. And then Becky Wyhand is the executive director of the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute, a nonpartisan and bicameral organization in D.C. We're so glad that you would all come and spend time with us this evening. Each of these organizations have individuals working in them that know and love and serve God. But their organizations are very different from the outside. For those looking in, tonight we're going to have some questions for you to have a better idea about who they are and the things that they do on an everyday basis. So my first question is to you, Dan. As an adoptive father, what insights has that created for you about how to um, do effective work in the area of foster care and adoption ministry? And then that added piece about, and how does that affect the church? What's the church's role in all of that? Fantastic question, Sharon. Thank you. Um, I'll just speak personally first. Um, I, I feel like being in pastoral ministry for, for 30 years, I was a bit of a kind of gospel tin man from uh, Wizard of Oz. I didn't have a heart uh, until I got in this space. It's like you, you go into the, this space and you work with vulnerable children and you serve in this space. And it's, it's like my whole world uh, changed, and I feel like personally it's affected me to have a, a tremendous amount of compassion and understanding, and even when I see kids and families and they're struggling a little bit, I, I just have compassion towards that because I know the, the, the type of kids that we're, we're dealing with here and the trauma that uh, they've experienced, so it has, it has changed me personally from the inside. I mean, it has just absolutely revolutionized my life, and then I added the foster care dimension to that piece, and that really rocked my world. I mean, adoption was one, and, and twice, done that twice, but foster care uh, changed everything. Now, to the church, um, I would just say, 
you know, it, it's more, to borrow Jason Johnson's statement, it's more than, than just a good thing to do. Um, it, it is an imperative. I mean, it's in the text, Isaiah 117, James 127. I mean, it's, it is our calling. I mean, this is what true faith, true religion really looks like. So, I mean, I would love to see the church in 2018 revisit it. And, uh, and at the same time, I don't believe everybody should foster or should adopt. Here, I just here. want to be clear. Yeah. Not everybody. We'll be the first to agree with you. Okay, you, you better have a rock-solid marriage, and uh, you, you better have a, a rock-solid family because it's just, it's just complex. And I, I say it's, it's beautiful, it's hard, and it's rewarding. Yes. And all three are in play at any given point. So, you know, it's beautiful, it's hard, and it's rewarding. And so, um, you know, I, I just think the church, but you don't have to, you don't have to be the one that fosters and adopts. There's so many things the church can do. I think the church in particular is at her strength at, at kind of preservation. Mm. Maybe I'm using technical terms, and sorry that we need to clarify, but preservation, <laughs> meaning good. at the edge of care before these kids are disrupted from their, their biological families. Mm-hmm. I think the church can step in there because they can deal with the whole person, the gospel, the life change, mm-hmm. the transformation, getting in parenting skills that, that's rooted and anchored in truth. So I think the church ought to step in, in there in preservation, and then when permanency is not possible to return, mm-hmm. then they step in in adoption uh, in, in that space. So, but there's tons of things you can do. If you don't want to foster an adopter, you're too old. Um, I don't kind of want to go back to, to, uh, to diapers personally, but um, if, if you, it, it, there's so many things. You can do respite. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can do a, emergency temporary care. You know, when an ECO happens, I mean, there's so many things you can do. You can provide meals, whatever. So there's just a thousand things. In other words, we're, we're, we would say you need to get into this space. At what level and at what point, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in there's room for everybody at, at the table. Oh, my. It, it's, it's a massive need, a massive need. So here, here. I'm transformed, never will be the same. And I think the church needs to be transformed. I think the church kind of gave it to the state, 1912. And that's a very unfortunate thing because kids never flourish in state's care. They never will. It's impossible. It'll never happen. We're good at one thing, safety. After that, permanency, it, you know, it's, it's a problem. So I just think we need to stay in the space that we need to be in and then, you know, let the church step in where she is strongest. And that's in preservation and biological families and then adoption and, and even the foster care in the, in the, at interim, which is supposed to be just temporary and small period of time. Does he have a message or what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> We're out of time. Some more questions for you, Emily. You're okay. safe. So, Chuck, you're an adopted dad. You're a CEO, president of an organization. And so you see adoption through a couple of different lenses. Can you share what your experience through your family's own journey has been like? And then talk about your role at the National Council for Adoption. Well, adoption is in my DNA. Uh, my father was adopted in 1929, and although he never liked to talk about it very much, um, I'm sure that knowledge um, directed me and my interest into working in the field of adoption. And for, as a college intern, I uh, started working for uh, a license agency uh, in this, there in Alabama and uh, was there 17 years. And then 17 years there, and then now 15 years here in D.C., as an advocate for children. And so over the course of that time, my wife and I, we fostered a child, we adopted two children. And, and so that personal connection to adoption certainly informs me and, 
and my passion. But one of the things that I have to guard against, and it's one of my pet peeves, is that um, when you look at policy, you look at um, best practice, that I can't rely on my experiences as an adoptive father or as the son of an adoptee or, or even um, as a former foster parent, uh, although that's part of it. I have to listen to many voices, um, look at the research, mm-hmm. and uh, all that coming together, I think, um, you know, helps us communicate what we think would be the best direction for adoption policy and practice, both here on Capitol Hill and as it's played out um, across the country and even in other countries. Um, but, um, yeah, adoption has um, really been, um, I am here uh, because without adoption, I never would have been born. So. Wow. Emily, here you are. Here I am. You have three sisters, a couple of brothers. Yes. Your family adopted children from China. Mm-hmm. You are serving in the ministry um, that your dad, your mom and dad founded at Show Hope. Can you talk about the beauty that you've seen and the ashes that you have um, lived through? As I think about your family founding um, Maria's Big House in China, and can you talk with that? Can you share a little bit yeah, with us so, about that? So we, um, our journey with adoption began um, in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom and I took a trip to Haiti, and it was profoundly impactful on me. And came home and sort of tried to champion the cause that my parents should get involved um, in the space of adoption and eventually was successful in my championing. God moved in incredible ways. And we found ourselves as a family in China in the spring of 2000 and welcomed Shoei into our family and then following Stevie Joy and Maria. And so, like Chuck just said, adoption has been something um, that has been profoundly beautiful for me um, and my family. The conversations we're having, my sisters are now teenagers around Mm -hmm. the dinner table. Shoei's about to go off to college next year. Um, what it means to be a transracial family in America in 2018, what does the conversations we're having, it's just profound, it's messy, it's beautiful all at the same time. And so I, I can't be grateful enough for what adoption's given me. You refer to the ashes. Adoption has also brought heartache into our family story that we were not necessarily prepared for on the front end. Um, we lost our youngest um, sister tragically in 2008, nearly a decade ago. And so that sent us into a journey that we would never have necessarily asked for. But out of that, you referenced Maria's Big House of Hope. So the work of Show Hope is centered around adoption advocacy through giving financial aid grants to families that are in the adoption process. Adoption can cost anywhere between 25 and 40 grand. So it's a really expensive process. And so that's where Show Hope sort of stepped into this world to reduce that financial barrier between children that need to find permanency in a family and families that are willing to bring those children in their home. Through that process, we realize that it's not best for every child necessarily or possible for every child to enter a family through adoption. And so what can we do in terms of care and support for children that won't necessarily um, be adopted? And specifically, we're involved with work in China because that's where our story is so deeply um, woven and we've had the opportunity to expand work there. After Maria passed away, um, we asked in lieu of flowers if people would be willing to um, give money in her memory and honor to show hope through Maria's Miracle Fund. 
we are incredibly blessed and humbled at the outpouring of support that came in. And through that, we was able to fund and build Maria's Big House of Hope, which is in central China. It's a care facility. We have about 250 kids there that have um, severe intellectual and physical disabilities. And uh, we are able to care for them. Uh, we will celebrate 10 years in 2019 of that being open. So cared for 2,500 kids so far, 700 of whom we know have been adopted. So um, that's pretty incredible. Awesome. So beauty well, well, out of ashes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Becky, you've been a faithful servant at CCAI. And so could you share with us about your journey with CCAI? Who is CCAI? What do they stand for? What do they do? The acronyms in the Which, state, it, yeah. Huge acronyms are big in state and federal they government. Are. So who's CCAI? Sure. And, and what does that mean to you? And tell us about your journey about being in foster care and adoption. Okay, great. Um, well, CCAI stands for the Congressional Coalition on Adoption Institute. We are a nonprofit organization, bipartisan, bicameral, mm -hmm. and um, we were created by members of Congress 17 years ago to serve alongside and kind of um, come along as a resource to members of Congress and congressional staff who, as we all know, are very busy and have a lot of things that they are juggling, mm -hmm. um, major issues, international issues, um, domestic issues. So we wanted to make sure that the voices of children, youth, and families, especially the experiences of children um, and youth who do not have families are being heard on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. So our organization makes sure that members of Congress and congressional staff have objective information. Chuck mentioned all the voices. We want to make sure all the different forms of experiences and expertise are brought to the table as members of Congress are making policy. Mm -hmm. And we love to actually bring the people who have the real life experience to that table so that they can brief and um, explain to the members of Congress what's happening. So we've been doing that for 17 years, and we have some great programs that bring those voices and those experiences to Capitol Hill. And your personal journey? Yeah, I, I'm honored that you guys asked that question. I actually really want to encourage everyone um, here tonight to um, just kind of think a little bit about people that you know in your world who, especially maybe as young people, have a passion for justice. Because at a young age, um, I knew that I wanted to work in this field at a very young age, probably 11 or 12 years old. My mom teases me that I told her I wanted to go to law school and advocate for children to have families, and she thought, oh, sure, that'll change next month. But it didn't, and um, it was in part because my parents really affirmed that in me and um, kind of helped me track along in that direction. And so I really didn't waver very much from that goal and um, went to law school. I interned for Chuck's organization. Um, and one thing I want to also say is that when I learned about CCAI, I was a first-year law student, and I had thought to myself, I don't need to recreate the wheel. I'm sure that there's people who are doing great work mm -hmm. in the policy space already. And so I discovered CCAI through a Google search, of all things. And when I read the mission statement, I actually teared up because I was reading what I had been telling people for years was what I wanted to do. But the funny part of the story is that both summers in law school, I applied to work with CCAI, and I did not get accepted to their internship program. <laughs> um, and I tell our foster youth interns, which is a program that we run on Capitol Hill for alumni of foster care, you know, if you know that you, you know, need to be connected with someone, be persistent and keep reaching out. And so, you know, I've been at the organization for nine years now, and I'm wow. just very honored to get to work with the members of Congress and the, the people that we get to work with. Wonderful. So this is next question is to the entire panel. When people think of adoption and foster care, it can sometimes have a negative connotation. How do, you t how do we talk about children in these situations and give them dignity? 
while sharing the reality of their situations, specifically using people-first language. How do we do that? Well, I'll go first. <laughs> uh, Dr. Um, Moore brought this up today where he talked about how we take generic terms to group people into these categories so we don't have to really think about them as real people and who they are. Um, and in the world of adoption, um, I know that some, uh, the way we discuss adoption sometimes really discourages mm -hmm. adoption, particularly, I'm thinking, in terms of expectant women who are having to make difficult decisions about pregnancy. And to ask a woman if she's interested in giving up or giving away her baby for adoption is not really a good starting point uh, that to, to have a good dialogue of what adoption accomplishes. Um, every adoptive father or every adoptive parent has had some, someone come up and want to know where your child's real mother is. They never ask about the dad. They always want to know where the real mother is. And then it's also been even because in our family, we have children who've come into our family biologically and through adoption. They're always, and, and they all look like us. Um, people want to know which one is our real child or our natural child. And, yeah. and so um, I love to tell them I don't remember. Uh, but, um, <laughs> the natural and the supernatural. That's right, that's right. <laughs> And so, um, I really, we try to avoid labels. You know, we used to talk about foster children, and now we talk about children in foster care. Um, sometimes, for the sake of communication, we might need to talk about an adoptive parent, but generally, I don't think we need to put that adoptive label on there unless it's absolutely necessary. We don't need to talk about, uh, this is their adoptive child. Um, so, the language, uh, the words that we use in discussing children and, and expectant parents and families who adopt and adopted persons, it, it matters and we need to be very careful in how we communicate, um, even unintentionally. I, I'll piggyback off of that. Um, you tell the stories of re, who's your real sibling. Uh, when I came back to work after Maria had passed away, I had a really sweet email from a really well-intended individual, I'm sure. And her email ended with, I'm just really glad it wasn't one of your brothers, implying that my grief was different somehow, um, which kind of rocked me back on my feet because I, I hadn't even processed through that lens. Um, and so I think that Chuck really hits on a hits a nail on the head in, in the terms of we really have to be careful in how our language can can divide the conversation when we have to be unified in this conversation. Um, we in this room believe and trust in a God who spoke the word, spoke the world into existence, and so words really matter. And we have a book full of words that we're all supposed to understand and agree on the essentials. Um, and and so words carry power in them. And so we need to be careful in how we're telling these children's stories. We, we sit in a space when we advocate for these children where we are entrusted with a certain aspect of their story. When they are discovering where their voice might be, they might be young and not have their words and voice yet. They might be in a system or a country where their words 
um, are suppressed in some way. And we exist in this really sacred space. And so we need to take that with a lot of respect and prayer with how we treat that because we're operating in a space where we're telling their story now, but it's their story forever. Okay. And so someday they come into that story and they're going to look back, especially in a world of social media and internet where we can share their stories and share pictures and this kid needs your help or how are we going to help this family? We need, to be, we need to keep the whole story in mind when we share and step in this little spot that we're in. Okay. I think they also want normalcy. I mean, yes. at the end of the day, I mean, we've, yeah. they're already coming into, you know, to the situation with a disadvantage. And uh, so normalcy, right language, careful, cautious language is absolutely crucial. I'll just add, I think, you know, not only the way we speak about them, but the way we introduce them in a room. You don't have to necessarily announce that they've experienced foster care or are adopted. You know, sometimes it's just good to be, like you said, normal in the room and um, just very honoring of inviting them to say something with, you know, maybe you have something to share in this conversation and then let them be the one to bring up if they, if they want to share that life experience with the crowd. So. All right. So, Dan, in your prior work on adoption and foster care, you put a lot of focus in mobilizing the church to partner on issues. What insights do you have about empowering churches to partner with ministries effectively? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it starts with the educating the church. I, I think she's a little ignorant at times or has kicked the can uh, down the road. So just getting the church re-engaged, I'd love to see that in 2018, just kind of let's revisit those texts. And if you start with Isaiah 117, it, you know, it, it talks about uh, learn to do good. There's all those five imperatives. The first one is learn, you know, and so I was meeting with a pastor in Lexington, Kentucky uh, last month. And um, what I did when I brought him, I brought him the numbers of how many uh, foster kids were in a three-mile radius or a five-mile radius to say, you know, it's not, not just this big 8,600 number, but these are kids in your neighborhood, potentially in your church, you know. So just awareness, educating, bringing them along. There's a lot of causes. There's a lot of justice that has to go on with the church because that's her responsibility. So, but just the education piece of it, I feel like... Um, somebody out there championing and getting them involved, engaging them, and really trying to, trying to get their feet wet, trying to really get them kind of owning a piece of this puzzle where, wherever they want to jump in in the stream. We talked about Emily, the stream there. Wherever you want to jump in the stream, just jump in and do something rather than nothing. But sitting back and letting the state do it is, is a huge error in my estimation, a huge error. All right. So, Emily, talk a minute about TBRI. And what is TBRI? All right. TBRI, we talked about all the acronyms, all the acronyms that are important <laughs> in this world. Uh, TBRI, Trust-Based Relational Intervention, is a um, parenting strategy. It's an intervention. It's holistic, attachment-based um, an intervention, really, to meet the complex needs of children that experience early childhood trauma. Um, we understand, we've heard many times from the stage today, that each human life bears that imprint deep in our DNA. We're made in the image of a God who is inherently relational within himself by nature of the Trinity, and therefore we bear this mark that we need and desire connection and belonging. And so children that experience um, an early loss in that connection, whether it be a loss of a biological child or abusive or neglectful caregiver, um, there is trauma there, and we need to be mindful of that trauma. And so 
what TBRI does, which is research that's um, come out of the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at Texas Christian University. It's as if our, our science and our behavioral psychology is catching up with our theology in a way, and we're realizing and understanding that um, trauma affects our children's brains, bodies, behavior, and belief system. And so how do we um, effectively engage in a way that can bring our children to experience hope and healing? We do that through the empowering, connecting, and correcting principles, which is the framework upon which this intervention method is um, kind of built and constructed. So it's helpful tools. It's, it's effective. It's practical tools for parents, educators, um, any support system personnel that it comes around a child that has been affected by early childhood trauma, whether it be through adoption, foster care system, um, whatever that might look like. Great. And I know that Show Hope provides scholarships, as does Focus on the Family, yep. to um, a number of clinicians and educators um, so that they can go down to TCU, Texas Christian University, and get the training um, so that they can use that in their practice, in their classrooms, um, in their regular lives, yep. so that children from trauma-impacted backgrounds can be made whole, right. can heal. Right. It's, it's yeah. like a new lens. Mm -hmm. Once I was introduced to it, and, you know, it's like I haven't seen, and all of a sudden I got a pair of glasses and I could see, and it's mm -hmm. like a lens that you see the whole system through, and it just make, it changes you. It, it transforms you. It gives you compassion and mercy and grace. And, I mean, it, it's a game changer. You, it was your fault, too. By the way. <laughs> you, you start had, seeing those needs behind right. behaviors. You yeah, know, it, and, well, and, and Kelly, going, like, she oh wore me goodness. out. Like, you know, on the but phone, it also she just, lets you see you about yeah. how oh. you can change what how do I, you What do I bring to, this, right. oh. to this narrative, yeah. and how is it? It's brutal. Yeah. So, Becky, just recently, something very powerful happened on the Hill around the adoption tax credit. Yep. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And the role that your organization played sure. and how you use collaboration yes. to make a change? Yes. Well, you all may have heard of tax reform in the last <laughs> couple months. Um, we, as an organization, kind of you know, keep our ear to the ground on the Hill. And about five years ago, uh, Congress started looking at tax reform very seriously. And at that time, um, my predecessor, our former executive director, started to gather the um, adoption and foster care community together and said, listen, we may have a battle in front of us to protect this credit that is given to adoptive families after they adopt in the tax year after they adopt. And um, so we brought together a group of 12 national organizations and 150 um, kind of organizations that were working kind of alongside of that, that um, core group, including Show Hope and including National Council for Adoption, and just started regularly working together and kind of figuring out what's our strategy going to be if, if it comes to this. So um, for five years, we worked together and prepared. We created a website, it's adoptiontaxcredit.org, and we aligned around principles. We worked with the leaders in the Senate Finance Committee and the House Ways and Means Committee. And then in October, November, um, the um, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act came out and it was introduced by the House um, Ways and Means Committee, and it did eliminate all the adoption benefits, including the adoption tax credit. And so we were ready, and we had um, a lot of um, families 
go through the website, record stories about um, how adoption and the tax credit had impacted their family, and it got shared with the members of Congress, but then we as a group also just worked really closely with the Hill and made sure that they were hearing the voices of the children, youth, and families who were being impacted by that credit. And it's a $13,000 credit in the year that you adopt per child, and um, you know, long-term savings for the federal government it costs a lot of money to keep a child in foster care for several years, about $25,000 per year at a minimum mm -hmm. per child. So really the cost savings in the long term um, is a huge benefit to our government. And so we were so thrilled to have the support of Focus on the Family and um, ERLC, just amazing teams who really activated and um, engaged on Capitol Hill as well. And so I'm very pleased to share with you all that the adoption tax credit was reinstated into that bill and it was preserved in the Senate version as well. And the president signed that bill preserving the adoption tax credit. How much, yep. How much advance notice did you have? Did you have any advance notice that this was well, going down? Well, we were kind of following the signs, and so we knew back in February that if the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, who is an adoptive father, was saying they might be cutting it, was saying that, that we were probably going to have an uphill battle. But um, again, just the community rallied, and um, yeah. you know, members of Congress listened. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what's so important. I really hope everyone takes that away, is that your voices are so important on the Hill. And members of Congress count, their, their staff count the number of phone calls they get on things. And then as soon as they get to X number, whatever it is in their office, you know, they bump it up to the policy team. So voices and engagement on Capitol Hill are so important. Speaking of engaging politicians, Chuck, um, what are some ways that our attendees can encourage their elected officials, both at the state and local level, and even the national level, to best care for children in foster care and children who have been adopted? Well, I'll just piggyback on what Becky said, that voice matters. Mm -hmm. uh, we do a lot of uh, time, spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill and work with the staffers, and these are very dedicated intelligent people, but they're not experts on every subject matter. And so they love to hear, uh, particularly from constituents. And uh, as Becky said, every office has a number, but it's a low single-digit number, usually six, seven telephone calls or six or seven emails on a subject usually results in a conference and a discussion of what the member's position on that issue will be. So you just can't... Um, really underestimate that. And if you're, not take, if you're not voicing your opinion, if you're not discussing it, then I can guarantee you someone else is whispering in their ear. And so using the, 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 your power to email or to make phone calls um, very much uh, results in change. And, um, and that's one of the things, even as I talked about my experiences, my personal experiences, not wanting that to be the only arbitrator on which we decide policy, um, that's why they need to hear the diversity of voices so that they can, can really evaluate and, and take a position. And um, it's very powerful, and we saw it happen in an amazing way um, this last November. In a matter of six days, we were, uh, with a lot of help, able to reverse um, you know, a very significant uh, change. I would say voice is huge. And second, the power of story. When you use your voice, uh, yeah. use it well. And, and yeah. I know I've read every letter that's come, you know, every word, and mm. to tears many times. I mean, just literally, or driving home and using that drive, 
you know, all the way home kind of weeping and just broken heart because it, it's just really messy. And, uh, and so I would say, you know, voice and the power of story. Never discount the power of story. The gospel comes in story, you know, and it just, it's powerful. And I would say off, it's free for download off our website at adoptioncouncil.org. There's a whole advocacy, how to, how to work at the state level, how to work at the federal level, how to communicate uh, sample template, you know, like templates uh, uh, of how to um, speak on an issue. And um, you can go to our website and download that and use it for your own personal advocacy. The power of your voice. Thank you all for coming and being with our audience today. Appreciate you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast. Visit us online at ERLC.com to hear the latest episodes or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play. And join us next week for a discussion on the gospel and the future of theological education.